This is the, so this is, we are into the 19th message in the series we're doing called Revelation Revealed. Revelation Revealed. He just told me to pray here. I, I just thank you, Lord, for the promise in Psalm 92.10 that our horn, that means our strength, my strength to speak and their strength to receive from you, to receive from you. Their horn, our horns you have exalted like the horn of a unicorn. Some translations say like a wild ox. We thank you that, that we have been anointed that this, this, this message has been anointed and they have been anointed re to receive with fresh, fresh oil in the name of Jesus Christ. So this is the 19th message in this series called Revelation Revealed. We're beginning, we're in the beginning of chapter 12 and we're going to go through all 17 verses of chapter 12. And so... Revelation 12, 1, there appeared a great wonder in heaven. That, that could be translated sign, should be translated sign in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun, clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet. Upon her head, a crown of 12 stars. We have the woman and the dragon, who you'll see coming, who are key players in this chapter. And... Many commentators believe I've read their writings on it. I've heard them speak about it, that this is one of the most important chapters in the Bible. In the Bible. It's talking about Israel. Without the nation of Israel, the Bible cannot be fully understood. If you don't understand Israel and what it's all about, and I think that's very obvious. If you took a poll of every church in America today, most of them, I would guess, have no idea the role that Israel plays in God's plan today. The subject of Israel alone covers at least five-sixths of the Bible. <coughs> Excuse me. There's a guy named Dr. Arnold Farkenbaum who, who, wrote, who wrote a PhD thesis on this subject. He also wrote a book called Israelology, The Missing Link. What is the missing link? Israel, he's saying, is the missing link in the systematic theology that pastors and ministers study and learn from. They learn nothing about Israel in seminary. Very little. If you do not understand God's purpose and destiny for Israel, the Bible will confuse you. It will trip you up. And really, you could say Revelation chapter 12 is summarizing this topic completely. I believe looking at verse 1, which we just read, Every single scholar I've read believes this is speaking about the nation of Israel. The woman represents the nation of Israel. The woman that was clothed with the sun. Israel even now is in the process of being brought back to God, even though we know that does not completely happen until the second coming of Jesus, which is at the end of the tribulation. But this, this, this whole thing started to roll out in the 1930s. We know that Hitler rising in Germany was something that was a complete setup by Satan. He was, it was a total setup, I believe, from Satan's point of view. The reason for World War II was the destruction of the Jews. And right ahead of the end time prophecies being fulfilled, he knew he had to hurry. 
He knew things were moving. And he figured if Israel could be stopped from becoming a nation, he could shut down or prolong, really, you could say, the book of Revelation. I think Satan was looking at it. When you look at all the prophecies of the Bible concerning Israel, if those prophecies cannot be fulfilled, then darkness wins. And he put all this in the hand of Adolf Hitler. Most people do not realize how close Hitler came to succeeding in in exterminating the Jews. There are numbers of 6 million Jews, 9 million Jews. The Jews say 14 million Jews were murdered by Adolf Hitler and the Nazis in the late 1930s and 40s. And Satan was figuring if he could kill enough of them, they would not be able to form a nation because all that was starting to be talked about as late as the uh, like early 1920s, late 19-teens. They were talking about it. And despite it being a small in geography and small in population in regards to technology and military ability, Israel is one of the strongest nations on earth. 100 million Muslims have not been able to take Israel out of their ancient homeland. All right? At this point where we are, the church has been raptured into heaven. And so let's just look at verse 1 again. There appeared a great wonder in heaven, a woman clothed in the sun and the moon under her feet and upon her head a crown of 12 stars. So... You have Israel being clothed in the sun that typifies the glory of God, looking at the moon under her feet. Um, the moon in the natural is just reflecting light. Did you know that? It doesn't have its own light itself. It's reflecting the light of the stars. It does not have its own light. And I read one commentator that believes the moon under her, the feet of Israel is referring to the apostate church during the great tribulation. This commentator believes the apostate church will accept Israel's false messiah. This is uh, one of the guys that believes Israel will think the antichrist is, is, is God, is Jesus returned, and therefore has to be Jewish. They think the antichrist is the messiah. That's what this guy thinks, but this apostate church turns on Israel at midpoint through the tribulation, siding with the Antichrist, and we'll discuss that later, but the Antichrist turns on the apostate church in the end, just as he does Israel in Revelation. He turns on them because he requires them, this apostate church, to worship himself as God. And looking at Israel, it says, upon her head a crown of 12 stars. It's talking about Israel's dominion and the fact that she was restored. And she doesn't get complete restoration until the second coming when she accepts Jesus. Verse 2, and she being with child cried, travailing in birth and pain to be delivered. It's almost like Revelation 12 is a parable telling a story. And every time you see wonder, it should be translated to sign. Okay, you you know, Israel, you know, I've read, well, if the woman's pregnant with child in the heavens, that's Mary. That's impossible for it to be her, the woman to represent Mary. Because when we get to verse 6, it says she gives birth to the child and flees to the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God for 1260 days. There are tribulation numbers right there in verse, in verse 6. You can't put Jesus 
uh, Jesus' mother Mary in this scenario in the tribulation because it doesn't make any sense. On another note, the biggest controversy is a lot of commentators, a lot of replacement theology people that don't know what they're talking about say that the woman is the church. Okay? And so, if this is the church, I guess reading all that happens, she's in big trouble, according to Chuck Smith, because she's pregnant. You have this woman, and you could say it's a parable that's being depicted as having a child, yet the church in Scripture is continually called the virgin bride of Christ. All through Scripture. The best way to interpret this or anything else in the Bible is you use the Bible to interpret the Bible. And so, in Genesis 37, Joseph had two dreams. In essence, Jacob interprets the dreams, the dream while he's rebuking his son Joseph. Remember when Joseph went and said, I had these dreams, and the sun's bowing, and the moon's bowing, and you guys are all bowing, and, 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 and Jacob, he, he scolded him for that. But he knew what he was talking about because the whole dream is talking about 12 tribes. The 12 tribes. The nation of Israel. Well, Jacob, remember he was named Israel. His, he was renamed Israel. It's referring to the sun and the moon bowing. You, you can read that, Genesis 37. You have Israel being described in the Old Testament as a woman in travail. Let's use scripture to interpret scripture. Just like we just read in verse 2 in the King James, she was being with child, cried, travailing in birth. In Isaiah 54, Isaiah 66, Jeremiah chapter 3, verse 6, Micah chapter 4, Micah chapter 5. This is just a small section of scriptures that you can find the nation of Israel depicted as a woman in travail. The Bible interprets the Bible. On top of that, we have the woman giving birth to the man-child. If you look farther into chapter 12, the Messiah. The church doesn't give birth to the Messiah. The guys that are saying that this woman is the church are replacing Israel with the church. That's usually their doctrine. And they don't, they don't know what they're talking about in such a demonic doctrine. Remember, Jesus was given that title, the title in Genesis 3.15, the seed of the woman, okay? Isaiah 9.6, for us, a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be on his shoulder. It's in the end. His name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father of Eternity, Prince of Peace. That's Isaiah talking in a Jewish context. Remember in verse 2, it said the woman was pregnant, cried out in pain, and she was about to give birth. What does that mean? Before Christ's birth, Israel was a captive nation to the Roman Empire. The Jewish people had to submit to Roman leaders, pay Roman taxes, obey Roman laws, and the Roman emperors, and they were a nation that was in pain. There's this viewpoint that I've talked about it. It's labeled replacement theology. And you have to be aware of that in these last days. Martin Luther, for all the good he did, he hated the Jews. 
He wrote despicable things about the Jews. And Hitler used everything Martin Luther said as a crutch for what he did, referred to it. Hitler used it, Luther's words, that Luther spoke out against the Jews. Replacement theology is an expanding view in the body of Christ today. When Israel rejected Jesus Christ, they're saying because Israel rejected Jesus that Israel forfeited the promises of God. And those promises shift completely to the church. That's what these guys think. Leaving Israel completely out. The concept is in many churches today, it's a doctrine of deception. This is, and the church has spiritually replaced Israel. This is the viewpoint of the Roman Catholic Church. For all the good they do, they're lost on this subject. They're not friends of Israel. And it's also a viewpoint of many major denominations that come from the Reformation out of the Roman Catholic Church. The viewpoint of replacement theology is widely taught throughout the denominations today of the world. This view is not only not biblical, it's dangerous. A doctrine of devils because it turns God into a liar. If you have this view, then you're taking away or limiting or hurting the character of God. God goes over and above in the Old Testament to repeat and repeat and repeat again and again and again the very detailed promises to the nation of Israel. If we're saying that in fine print, those promises are not going to be fulfilled, it's taking away from his character. And that says then he'll take your covenant too. You have Israel appearing 75 times in the New Testament. In 73 different verses, God went out of his way to make it very clear to Abraham. And Abraham had nothing to do with this covenant. He was asleep on the ground when God cut this covenant with him. And, 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 and these God, promises God gave the Jewish people were unconditional. Paul hammers away in Romans 3, in three straight chapters, that God is not finished with the nation of Israel. Romans 9, 10, and 11. The whole point of Romans 9, 10, and 11 is saying God is not through with Israel. These promises are going to be fulfilled. You don't even have the church on the earth in the first 69 weeks of Daniel. And then there's, a, there's the, the church age, and then you have the 70th week of Daniel. It's an interval between the 69th and 70th week of Daniel. We spent 16 weeks in the book of Daniel. You can go back and review that. It's in chapter 9. How did replacement theology start? A guy named Augustine. Some call him Augustine. Yeah, that's right, St. Augustine. Very gifted writer. He's one of the early church fathers. He was the guy that introduced this allegorical stuff. Everything's an allegory. Okay? And he had to. You have to understand the times that this was being developed. What was going on politically? The classical biblical view that Jesus comes in the end to take the earth away from all the evil people, the evil empire, and sets up his kingdom back in that day, in St. Augustine's day, they were all state paid. They were all paid by the state. That was not a real popular point of view because you're on salary by the empire. 
The guys in charge, they're paying these ministers' salaries. And here you are, and you're attacking, in essence, the empire and calling it evil, saying Christ is going to come save the world from the evil empire. So, so Augustine, or Augustine as some call him, started to rebend and shape with his gifts of words and writing. Augustine said, no, no, Jesus can rule in your heart. But he's not going to take the world back from the evil empire. That's how he kept himself getting paid. So this leads to some called a millennial eschatology. And this was picked up by the medieval church. A millennialism is picked up by the medieval church with their lust for power and control. And then you have the reformation where the break from the Roman Catholic church and their primary focus in the beginning, you know, when, when, when the reformation, when they broke from the Roman Catholics, they focused on the message of the gospel. Huh? The, really, it was about righteousness. And you had many people martyred to break from the Catholic Church. But the Reformation stuck with Augustine's amillennial eschatology, where we rule the world in the end through the power of God. We're going to take over the world. We're going to rule the governments. We're going to usher Christ in. Okay? No rapture. All right? These are those people. So I, but but it, it, it's appropriate to talk about replacement theology because it... it it went from Augustine to the Holocaust, and it's going to go to Armageddon. And this is the underlying current of all that, is replacement theology. It led to the Holocaust in Germany with Hitler and the Nazis. Before, there's going to be another Holocaust in the tribulation. Revelation 12:3. there appeared another sign in heaven. And behold, a great dragon having seven heads, ten hordes, seven crowns upon his heads. Sounds like we're in Daniel now, doesn't it? We're going to see that this dragon is identified as we get to verse 9, verse 4. And this tail drew the third part of the stars of heaven and did cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman, which was ready to be delivered for to devour her child as soon as it was born. You've got this red dragon and the stars in verse 1 represented the nation of Israel, the 12 tribes. But in verse 3, again, wonder should be translated sign. The great dragon is symbolic of Satan himself. You find that out in upcoming verses. What's interesting is the seven heads. I see that most commentators agree represent the seven major empires that have ruled Israel and persecuted them in the past. I should say six. The last one isn't here yet. The Syrian Empire, the, rep, the, the seven stars or the crowns, or it says the seven heads represent Assyrian Empire, Egyptian Empire, the Babylonian Empire, the Medo-Persians, the Greeks, and the Romans. And the last one will be the European Union. These are seven empires that Satan has led. He'll lead the seventh. We see the dragon, the enormous red dragon has 10 horns. This symbolizes the 10 kings or 10 countries that reign with the Antichrist at the beginning of the tribulation. Most commentators believe it will be the European Union. 
that turns into what many scholars call the revised Roman Empire. They come on the scene the same time the Antichrist comes on the scene. They get along for a while. As we talked about in Daniel, the Antichrist goes to war with three of them. He beats, beats them so bad, the other seven capitulate to him. As one commentator put it, it's going to make the world's experience with Adolf Hitler look like a Sunday picnic. So where are we? We've got a pregnant woman in the stars, Jesus unborn. You've got the giant red dragon, seven heads. By the way, in verse 3, seven crowns on the seven heads, on top of the seven heads, represents Satan's ultimate rule over those seven empires. And Satan ruled them. If you don't believe he ruled them, just look at the gods. The Assyrians, Egyptians, Babylonians, Persians, and Greeks, and Romans worshipped. In verse 4, his tail sweeps one-third of the stars out of the sky, flings them to earth. These stars are representing angels. This is the, 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 the first rebellion involving millions of angels. It's also the past. We're, we're in the past is what he's referring to. He's, he, because why? He's trying to devour the Son of God when he comes out. He's waiting. Remember when, when Herod killed all those babies? You know? He wants to get them as soon as he comes. Ultimately, Satan crucified him, and he thought he had won at that point. Verse 5, she brought forth a child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron, and her child was caught up unto God to his throne. And so Israel, the woman, gives birth to Jesus, and it says he will rule the nations with a rod of iron. The reference to Jesus being snatched up is reference to his ascension into heaven following his death and resurrection. It is very clear that when Jesus comes back the second time at the end of tribulation, it's all over the Old Testament prophesied, you're not going to have a bunch of nice people on earth. Are you aware of that? <laughs> There's going to be a lot of messed up people on earth. They've been under the Antichrist doing all kinds of crazy things, and when Jesus returns, not everyone's going to line up, all right? To some extent, we'll get into that, but he's, he's going to have to gain control when he comes. He's gonna, that's why he's going to rule the nations with a rod of iron when he comes back. And so verse 6, the woman flee, uh, flees into the wilderness, where she hath a place prepared of God that they should feed her there 1,203 score days. You have the Apostle John in verse 6. He is jumping in time from 60 years before the vision of Revelation, the ascension of Jesus, and into a time that has not yet happened in verse 6. And I'm not just saying that for convenience. Many, most commentators agree there is a gap in time between verse 5 and 6. And you see this all through Daniel, these gaps between verses. The same gap you find in Daniel 9 between verses 25 and 27, same gap. That's the same gap we have here from the ascension of Jesus, bam, into the tribulation. That's just like Daniel 9. You've got another gap, Daniel 9, 26, same gap. Ascension to tribulation, 69th week, 
to 70th, 70th week. You got a gap, okay? If you don't know what I'm talking about, we did, we did a whole series on the book of Daniel. Just a side note, there's 24 gaps in time like this in the Bible. Let me give you an example of another gap. Again, involves the church. Jesus kicks off his ministry, goes up in front of a synagogue. Remember that? Luke 4, 18. Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He's sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives, recovering the sight to the blind, set at liberty them that are bruised, to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. And then he calls the book. He's reading what the Jews call the portion of Scripture out of Isaiah. Well, he didn't finish. He shut the book at a real interesting time. Isaiah 61, 1 and 2, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. The Lord has anointed me to preach the gospel, good tidings unto the meek. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, claim liberty to the captives, opening the prison to them that are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord, comma. And he shut the book. And the day of vengeance of our God. He left that out. He didn't finish. Why? Because Jesus wasn't there when on earth to be our sacrifice for the day of vengeance. So he, he shuts it down. Okay? He shut the book before he read that part. What do you have? You have a gap in time before that's fulfilled. 2,000 years again. I'm trying to tell you, the Bible has 24 of these. That particular comma that Jesus stops at has been a gap in time, and that comma has lasted 2,000 years because the day of vengeance of our God is what we're preaching about during the tribulation in Revelation. How the Bible has 24 of these gaps in time, just interesting little things. There's 24 elders representing the church in heaven. A lot of these gaps that we're talking about in Daniel, the gap that we just read about in Revelation, the gap in, in, in Isaiah, church age. Church age. Oh, the Bible's so coincidental, isn't it? Just full of coincidences. Verse 6, the woman f flees to the wilderness where she has, hath a place. So he f skips forward in time, all right, from the ascension of Jesus, and now boom, he's forward. She's got a place prepared of God that they should feed her there 2,203 score days. This, this is that frame. Sometimes it's called 1,260 days. Sometimes it's called 42 months. Uh, sometimes it's called 1,203 score days. Sometimes it's called half of a seven-year period. So most matter, everyone I read, all prophecy experts, commentators agree this is the mid, mid point. We are at the mid point when Israel flees of the tribulation. I recently had a pastor when I was over in Israel. He says, you're putting time frames on things, and I just think that's wrong. And I thought about that. I didn't say much. But then I went back and I said, I'm just giving you time frames of things that they give us time frames on. And I think he had been listening to the podcast because we did something called a revelation timeline. There's an order. There's an order. And yes, there are times. They, they give you time frames. When things happen, when you're halfway through, 
You know, there are time frames. There's an order to the book of Revelation, but there's also some pretty clear time frames, like right here. Now, Jesus taught the temple will be defiled either by the Antichrist, by himself, or the Antichrist put an image of himself in the tribulation temple. And he tells those who live in Judea, you've got to flee to the mountains when that happens. Jesus tells them. When that happens, you've got to run. They're fleeing to the mountains in the desert. They're half defeated at this point. Um, it's a desert of Jordan called Petra. It's a, mountains, a bunch of mountains, which is an abandoned city carved into the mountains. It's huge. It only has one entrance, and they hide in this huge city for three and a half years. For those of you who have been to Israel, Petra is about 20 miles south of the Dead Sea in, this, in the country of Jordan. It's a city that is so massive, as I said, carved into the rocks. It's kind of hidden at the end of a one-mile, 1,000-foot deep gorge. Another reason it's time for Israel to flee is Revelation 12:7, because this is about to get real bad. Let's just, let's read through verse 13 and then explain it. There was war in heaven at this time. Remember, we skip forward. We were at the ascension, right? Boom. Suddenly, we skip forward. Michael, his angels fought against the dragon. The dragon fought and his angels prevailed not. Neither was their place found anymore in heaven. The great dragon was cast out, that old serpent called the devil and Satan, which deceiveth the whole world. He was cast out into the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now has come salvation and strength in the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ. For the accuser of our brethren. Wait, what was he doing right before he was cast out? Accusing the brethren. Okay. Hint, hint. This is the second time is cast down. The accuser, the guy accusing you right now will be cast down, which accused them before God day and night. And they overcame him by the blood of the lamb and the word of their testimony, and they loved their, not their lives unto death. Therefore rejoice ye heavens, ye that dwell in them. Woe. Hint. Remember the three woes? Woe. This is the seventh trumpet. Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and of the sea, for the devil is come down unto you, having great wrath, because he knows his time is short. When the dragon saw that he was cast under the earth, what did he do? He persecuted the woman which brought forth the male child. I'm just going to read straight from a commentator. There's old school guys out there that think we just read, just suddenly out of nowhere a rehashing in the book of Revelation of Satan's first fall. But I can tell you, most, just about all of these guys, it's like every 25 of them, 23 of them agree, this happens again. And so, first there was a war in heaven. He accuses the brethren night and day. That guy, the guy that accused the brethren night and day is thrown out of heaven. Up in heaven, he accuses them before God just like he did in Job, just like you had spirits up there where things opened up for them to go deceive the wicked Israel king Ahab. There were a bunch of demonic spirits up there. There's a whole conversation. We went over that a few weeks ago. That's why we need an advocate. 
Otherwise, we wouldn't need an advocate. What's he advocating for then? If there's no one accusing, there is a courtroom or a place in heaven. At this point, you have Satan being completely thrown out of heaven, out of this place. This is the third woe. But woe unto you, O earth and sea. Think about this. The dragon was cast down who is a seducer. What's he talking about? The brethren. Christians. There were no Christians the first time he was thrown out. Okay? It doesn't say he was accusing all the inhabitants on earth that he was ruling on earth between Genesis 1-1 and Genesis 1-2. It doesn't say that. All right? He's forced out down to earth, and as it says, his angels cast with him. Like I said, you can study it out. His angels were up in heaven in the courtroom or that place in heaven when God finally decided the wicked king Ahab's cup of mercy had run out, and there's a wicked spirit. He chose, okay, you go do that. You go deceive Ahab, right? That was that place. You find the devil, same place, meeting about Job, okay, in heaven. And even though nothing's ever mentioned about him losing that ability, that spot, like he was going after Job, nothing's ever mentioned. There's no scripture that says he can't go up there. Now he's cast out, okay? He's lost that ability. He fights for it and loses it. And I want to read from a famous commentator who I very much respect. He's written commentaries on every book in the Bible, word for word, word for word. I'm telling you, if you look at 25 of them, I promise you 23 or 24 are going to say exactly what this guy is saying. He says, the mystery of God being finished in Revelation 10:7, as we've already stated, Satan and his angels, along with demon spirits, have access to heaven. And in fact, have had this access from the time of their rebellion against God. Among other things, they are there to accuse the brethren, of which Job, chapters 1 and 2, are examples. Another one with Ahab. Some claim that the word heaven here only refers to the atmosphere above earth and not where God dwells. However, the scriptural evidence, I think, points to the heaven where God dwells. Some people think Satan is presently in hell. He is not in hell, and actually, there is no record that he's ever been to hell, okay? He, can't, he doesn't like the place any more than anyone else. To the contrary, his habitation in the spirit world is heaven and earth. So last verse we read, we have Satan pursuing the woman. Okay, verse 14, the woman were given two wings of a great eagle that she might fly into the wilderness into her place where she is nourished for a time and times and a half from the face of the serpent. That's three and a half years. Another way to say three and a half years. She spends three and a half years in those mountains, the Petra mountains in Jordan. And now we see verse 14, Although from this verse, you have some scholars speculating, just a few, that this is the United States coming to rescue airlifting Jews to safety. And to the woman were given two wings, a great eagle, that she might fly into the wilderness. No, that's probably not the case, okay? Because if you let Scripture interpret Scripture, God says he brought Israel out of Egypt on eagles' wings. Okay? The Jews interpret that Scripture to mean they escaped through the grace of God. 
And God sustains this remnant of Israel for the entire second half of the tribulation. Verse 15, and the serpent cast out of his mouth water as a flood after the woman, that he might cause her to be carried away of the flood. You often see flood waters used as a symbol for armies. You can see when Assyria attacks Judah, it calls them flood waters, these armies. It's the intent of the Antichrist and the false prophet at this point, his right-hand man. They order an attack and start pouring troops into the wilderness to overwhelm the fleeing Israelis. Verse 16, and the earth helped the woman. The earth opens her mouth, swallows up the flood which the dragon cast out of her mouth. So you have God intervening. And we see that he swallows up a lot of this army, a large part of that portion of the Antichrist army that had been designated to overrun the Jews. You see God intervening like this, even outside the Bible. Think about this. When Spain, who was 100% Catholic, sent at the time the biggest armada of ships ever put together over to England, they were going to invade England and turn the English into Catholics. They were going to Catholicize England. And I'm telling you, it is the Lord that sent an, an, a, such a violent storm into the English Channel that destroyed the Spanish Navy, more or less for good. But this was the hand of the Lord because it would have changed the world if the Spanish would have Catholicized England at that time. And you can see here, those of us that think about this kind of thing, you might be asking questions. Well, what about all the air power? that the Antichrist is going to command. Wouldn't he be able to take out the fleeing Jews with the air power? That's why the book of Daniel and Revelation together are so key. It's one of the reasons Billy Brim told me, if you preach the book of Daniel, you should follow it with Revelation. You should follow it with Revelation. Daniel eleven forty four. This is about the Antichrist, okay? When, when he's, he's going to go after the Jews here, he's got this army, but tidings out of the east and out of the north trouble him. Therefore, he shall go forth with great fury to destroy and utterly to make away many. So whatever these tidings are, out of the east and the north, it'll be very high magnitude, and the Antichrist will feel that he has to get right on this. He has pretty much conquered Israel. He's got them fleeing their own country. So he leaves Israel alone, directs his attention to other nations that many scholars think are rebelling at that point. It's not all smooth sailing for the Antichrist. So he pulls his forces from that area and takes them to the north and to the east. Verse 17, and the dragon was wroth with the woman, went to make war with the remnant of her seed, which keep the commandments of God and have testimony of Jesus Christ. The escape completely infuriates Satan. He has failed completely again to completely take care of the Jews and we're reading about things that are starting to happen in the second half of the tribulation. The scholars, most of these scholars believe are, there are many, many Gentile believers on earth at this time, refusing the mark, probably living a life, a tough life, and the fact that it calls the people 
It calls these people, the, the Antichrist goes to make war with the offspring of Israel. Well, who's that? Many commentators believe that's Christians, Gentile believers. So he takes his anger out on the Gentile believers. We see Satan making an all-out attempt to kill them at this point. And so as we start to close here, I just I want you to remember this scripture. Jesus said unto her, this is at the garden tomb after he was raised again, right? Switching gears here. Don't touch me. I'm not yet ascended my father, but go to my brethren and say unto them, I ascend to my father and your father and to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene came and told the disciples that she had seen the Lord, that he had spoken things unto her. But why was she there? Okay, we'll get into that. Why was she there? In, the, in the, th- that book that I brought up many times, Dr. MD, PhD, Frederick Zugaib called The Crucifixion of Jesus, A Forensic Inquiry. I've just about squeezed everything I can out of that book and shared with you. But he did have a really good chapter, chapter six, called Jesus Arrives at Calvary. Okay? And just paraphrasing Dr. Zugaib, when Jesus finally made it to that place of crucifixion, If you go to Israel, you'll look at it. And if you look carefully, you can still see the face of the skull. And the rock that he was crucified on, it's a skull. It looks like a skull. Okay? It's a face. And it's deteriorated over the years. They'll show you pictures from, you know, like the 1910. And it's very prevalent. And that's why they called it the face of the skull. You see it, you look at it, you sit down and you stare at it right before you take communion in the garden tomb. And so he's talking about, he makes it up there. He was stripped completely. He would have been gasping for air. He, he, would, have, he, would, have, he would have been clutching his chest with every breath, okay? It would have been hard to breathe. So he'd tear his clothes off of him but from the scourging. Would have been very hard to breathe. Any sudden movement, if the soldiers grab him, it would be unbearable pain. He was in, we talked about the hypovolemic shock. He was in shock from this. What we're talking about is what happened on the hill before and as he was placed on the cross. They threw him to the ground and, 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 they, they, and he laid him on his back with his shoulders and arms outstretched on the cross piece, just the cross bar. The post is, is in the ground at this point. One of the Roman soldiers would have laid across his chest and another across his legs. This doctor says they would have had to. They would have had to. This is while he was on the ground on his back with his shoulders and outstretched arms on the cross piece. He had a soldier on his chest, a soldier laying across his legs to hold him down. This is just how they operated. It would have caused him severe difficulty in breathing at that point. He says he probably, and he's going with the average man here, would have been pushing against the soldier, against his chest, with everything he had. All right? Because he was having trouble breathing. 
Each arm was grasped separately, forcibly stretched out parallel to the cross piece. A large square spike like a rusty nail made of iron was nailed to the palm of the hand. Just below the, we've, we, we looked at that one week. It's, if you do this, you can see where it is. It's just below the, the meaty part of the thumb. Just a little bit on one side. That's the only place that, that could hold them, that it wouldn't rip through, Okay. The pains that he felt would have been pure brutality. It would have felt like, as we've talked about, hot pokers shooting through his arms like lightning bolts. They would have caused Jesus, remember he was on his back on the ground, to arch his torso. And I don't picture this, but the doctor says letting out piercing screams. The process was then done to the other hand. And we talked about this. Two members of the execution squad would get on each end of that cross piece and they lift it up. They lift him up. He's nailed at this point, okay? Third member would grab him around the waist, picking him up around the waist, and they would back him up to a platform device in front of that post in the ground and lift him up and place it in there. While the others lift him by the legs and the waist, they insert the cross piece at the top of the upright. And we talked about that cross. I just want to make it clear to you Probably this is how most of the people that have studied this stuff have agreed. Can we show that just the, only of the cross, the image only of the cross? Do we have an image of just the cross? Yes, it's a, it's a, it's a because they did so many of these, right? So they just wanted them available. So this, it was like they, you, you place it in there. And they pick them up and they lift them up and, and this is where you got his bones popping out of joint. Because he's here. There's nothing. His legs are off the ground. Feet are off the ground. It says in Psalm 22, 14, I'm poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted in the midst of my bowels. Most scholars believe um, that he lost control of his bowels. From, from this, remember, he, he was, when it's described in Isaiah 53, they look at, it, they look at him as, a, as an element of shame, as a thing of shame. He's shamed, right? And so the doctor here says they bend his knees and they put his feet flush, but he's still hanging. And then they nail whether if it was one big nail into the feet on top of each other or two nails with the feet right next to each other. Feet are flat on the cross, knees bent. And again, he says Jesus likely would have screamed in agony after and while each foot was being nailed. Psalm 22, 16, 17, for the dogs have compassed me, the assembly of the wicked have enclosed me, they pierce my hands and my feet. I may tell all my bones. I can look and see my bones. Okay? He can see his ribs, his rib cage. They're all looking at him. They're staring at him. The doctor's saying is likely, I know. I never pictured that. He's screaming in, in, in agony. While we we're putting this together, my assistant vehemently disagreed with the image of Jesus screaming. It's, I, I just want this on your conscience. I want you thinking about it. We, can, we, we don't know. 
right? This is what an MD-PhD says a man would be doing. Anybody getting their feet nailed to a wooden cross while being suspended in the air, I'm just telling you what the doctor said. But we know that after crucifying him, he's up there bleeding for six hours. They divided his outer garment into four parts. So they're down there gambling. This is just a regular thing for them. But since the tunic he had was high quality and it had no seam, they didn't rip that into pieces. They just gambled to, for that as one piece. Psalm twenty-two, eighteen: they part my garments among them and cast lots upon my vesture. Why? Why are, we, why are we keep doing this? Why are we keep going over this? Because you need to know about your God and what he did for you. It needs to be imparted to you, the knowledge that we can gain of that what he went through. Exactly. 1 Corinthians 2, 2. I've resolved to know nothing, to be acquainted with nothing, to make a display of the knowledge of nothing, and to be conscious of nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified, to make you conscious of it. Galatians 2, 20. But then, but then to remember, this is how Paul, the guy that wrote two-thirds of the New Testament, this is how he viewed it. This guy rose people from the dead. I just listened on Easter. Dad's talking about resurrection power. I've been crucified with Christ. Think about that. God, can we put the, can we put the, uh, the sculpture up? Yeah, we, we found a better image of that. But let me tell you something. God looks at you like you went through that. Do you understand that? You get credit for that. How can you not think you're not forgiven? How can you not think you're not forgiven? You're doing him, you're, it says in Hebrews, I believe that's, you're trampling on the blood of Jesus. I've been crucified with Christ in him, I've shared his crucifixion. Can we see that scripture? I have shared his crucifixion. Have you shared it? It is no longer I that live. Paul says, it's not me that's living. But Christ is living in me. It was that real. And the life I now live in the body, I live by faith. In the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. Remember, please, let God know how grateful you are that Jesus did this for you every day. Not just a quick one. Take your time. Meditate on it. Think about Gethsemane. Think about him sweating blood for you. He was in such anxiety, he sweat blood. He went from there to Caiaphas' house. He was beaten, probably had his beard pulled out, blindfolded, hit, verbally abused, from there, a scourging ripped through his whole body, front and back. After that, uh, 80 Roman soldiers beat him up and beat crowns into his head. Then you have the crucifixion. Thank him for it. Thank him for being separated from his father on the cross. It's the only time he said, my God, my God. It's the only time he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's the only time he called his father God. Because he was separated. He didn't have him. He was gone. Breathing up there for six hours. Ask him daily for a deeper revelation of the cross. 
Remember, it's not only a symbol of victory that Jesus won. I'm coming back with this scripture next week because I know it won. It says it's the power of God. It's the power of God. You think about after Jesus has been crucified, you had Mary Magdalene, we read about, and the, the other women go to his tomb. Why? Why did they go to his tomb? They were going to anoint his dead body. Let's think about that. That means they didn't believe him. They didn't believe him because Jesus told them he would be crucified and rise again on the third day. Why? But, but, but they, they didn't believe. Why did they ultimately believe? Because they saw him and they talked with him and they touched his nail-scarred body. The, the Bible says at one point the resurrection of Jesus, resurrected Jesus appeared to 500 people. So they see this and they believe. And we can read these accounts in the Bible. But let me tell you something. It's the greatest proof that we will ever know, that I will ever know. The greatest proof is to have a personal relationship with Jesus. You can really have it. You can really, really know him. Have you given your heart to him truly? You can. You, you can know that he's just there. And over time, you see him in everything. You see him in everything. You start to see him in people. But you have to open your heart to a personal relationship with him as your Lord and Savior. I heard it said once, and this might or might not be true, but it kind of hit me when I, I heard it. It's a good point. The best person for saving a soul, in this evangelist's opinion, is another soul that had been lost before. Okay? Is a person that lost their soul and then found it again. And I can tell you that I know what it means to have lost my soul. And I know what it means to have found it again in a relationship with him. So I just, I just want to ask you guys to bow your heads and close your eyes. Because you... You can, the prodigal son, think of God running, ran for him, recognized that boy from a long ways away, and he had done nothing but bad stuff, and ran to him, which was not a cool thing for a Jewish man to do. Lifted up his robe and sprinted. And the son was like, I've, I've been. He didn't even let him finish. He didn't even let him finish. He, he interrupted him and gave him everything back. Immediately gave him everything back. So I just want to, if you, if you, you want to ask Jesus to come into your heart to be your Savior and be your Lord, and have a special relationship with him now 
let's just do it. Let's just agree. Let's agree all together. I need you to say these words, but first I need you to raise your hand. Raise your hand and say, I, I want, I need to do this. I need to do this. I need to do this now. Just raise your hand. I'm, you're going to stay in your seat. It's just me and you. I see, the, I see uh, two hands in the balcony. Are there any other hands? Are there any other hands? And online, online, punch the button. Punch the button. Say, say I want that. I want that. I want what you're talking about, Jim. Online, punch that button. There's a button you can press. Is there, is there, is there other hands? Okay, I see the hand towards the back. Down the middle. Thank you for that hand. Once I acknowledge you, you can put your hand down. Are there any other hands? Three, I had three hands. Anybody online? Thank you, Lord. Online is about a minute behind us. So let's just give them a little bit. Thank you, Father. L- let me tell you something. If something's saying, just raise your hand, that's an acknowledgement to God. You're not acknowledging me. You're saying, God, I want this. And you know what you're saying by raising your hand? I believe I can have it. Or you wouldn't raise your hand. You wouldn't raise your hand. And that is not the devil telling you to raise your hand. That's the Holy Spirit. That's the Holy Spirit. Is there anyone else in here? Just to make sure that I'm not missing. I see another hand in the balcony. Thank you. That's four. Is there any other hands? I see that hand. Any other hands? Let me just make sure. Oh, I see another hand straight, straight down the middle towards the back. Thank you so much for that hand. Thank you so much for that hand. Five. I see that hand right there. Thank you so much. Six. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. I know in my heart there's going to be 50 of these this weekend. There's going to be 50 people that walk out of here with a relationship with him. So I'm just going to ask you if you would Just repeat after me this prayer. We're just acknowledging to God. We're acknowledging something to God here, and we're asking him, and this is all you have to do. This is all you have to do to spend eternity with him. You raised your hand because you believed he died for you. You believed he died for you. So just repeat after me, dear God in heaven, I believe that Jesus is your son. I believe he died for my sins on the cross and was raised from the dead three days later. I ask you, Jesus, to come into my heart, to be my savior, and be my Lord. Thank you for saving me now. Amen. Amen. Thank you for that hand online, too. That's seven. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord.